You know, I usually don't like to give announcements, but it's necessary this week and probably next as well. There are cards, invite cards. I mentioned to you last week our fall festival, which is happening October 2nd on the campus in Wadsworth. We won't have any services here that day. We will all be there from noon to 3. There will be food trucks and um, things for the kids, but also uh, just a time to mingle amongst the entire congregation and bring our friends to it. Then at about 3.15, we'll have a worship service in the parking lot, much like we have done when we've been on the square or in the parks. We'll bring our lawn chairs and we'll sit up in the parking lot. Then the entire church uh, in Wadsworth and Medina will come together for a worship service that day. Exciting? I mean, it's going to be cool. It's going to be cool. If you don't want to come for the whole thing, come like 2 o'clock, grab yourself something to eat. Uh, I know one of them is Ohio Valley Pizza right here, and Medina will be there, and about three or four uh, other food trucks and all kinds of things happening. Then on Wednesday, the last Wednesday of this month, we'll begin here on Wednesday night every other week something called Midweek Medina. Uh, where I will lead a video-driven Bible study. This one happens to be by Francis Chan, and it will go for six weeks every other week at 7 o'clock here in this room. Give us a chance to touch base. Uh, Sunday morning doesn't always do that, and pray together and share together. So I hope you'll be encouraged by that. This morning we continue our series, Potholes. And we've been looking at things that come up upon us, emotional potholes, that we don't always see them coming, but when they come, they have, much like road potholes, they have the power to throw us off of our way and even damage our spirits. This morning we're talking about a tough one, the pothole of depression, or what we might call the pothole of despair. As we talk through this, I'm not really talking about clinical depression or a major depressive disorder, which many people have that needs to be treated medically, and I know that those things exist. But more so what I'm talking about is the depression that's seasonal. It comes upon us because of life circumstances, life situations, And when it hits us, our first thought is, man, I didn't think this would happen to me. I thought it just happened to other people. But when it comes upon us, it can be overwhelming and it can overcome us. So how do we deal with that? Well, I want to learn from another Old Testament character. We're going to look at the life of Elijah for a few minutes together here this morning. In the position we find him in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, it says this, Elijah came to a broom tree, and he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. Wow. Here's his prayer. You know, God, I've had enough. I've had enough. There was this, and then, and then, and then this, and I'm just done, God. I've had enough, and he prays, God, take my life. Take my life. Now, understand what brought him to that point. We have to rewind three and a half years. Elijah warned King Ahab of his nation's sin and rebellion against God. And because of that, 
God was going to send a drought. And King Ahab didn't take him seriously, but then it didn't rain, and it kept on not raining, and eventually the drought came upon him. As a result, King Ahab threatened Elijah, pointing a finger at him and his people pointing a finger at him. For three years, Elijah lived with threats. And what's interesting, and you can read that whole account on your own, I encourage you to do that, but those were the most powerful three years for Elijah because all the way through, God kept challenging him, encouraging him, and he pushed through. The, the prolonged drought ends dramatically, and this is the part of the story you probably remember in Elijah's story. He challenges the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Remember the scene? Elijah challenges them to what seems to be kind of like a cage match of sorts between the real God and the false gods to determine who was truly God. And they build these altars, and they both pray to God to bring fire down from heaven on these altars. The 450 prophets of Baal go first. And by the way, Baal, the god of Baal, is the god of rain. Crazy, huh? Shouldn't surprise us that God wants to get the people's attention. He sends a drought to teach them, but then also to go against their false god, Baal, which was the god of rain, proving that God's not going to bless his competition. They're worshiping the god of rain, a false god. He sends a drought, much like if you worship the god of money. Don't be surprised that God's not going to bless the financial parts of your life because God's not going to bless his competition. You wonder if you're turning to other relationships to find security in life and meaning in life. God's not going to bless your relationships, again, because God's not going to bless his competition. Nothing that comes before him will God bless. And so they worship the God of rain. God sends a drought. 450 prophets of Baal begin, begin praying to their gods to bring fire down from the altar, and they don't respond. Why? Because they don't exist, right? They're not real. They don't exist. Elijah watches all this go on, and he starts talking a little trash to them. Like, hey, why don't you cry a little louder? Maybe your gods are sleeping. Cry a little louder. Well, they cry louder, they begin to cut themselves to get the attention of their gods, but nothing happens. Finally, it's Elijah's turn. Elijah says, hey, hey, guys, here's what I want you to do. Make a little tough on my God. Why don't you go and get me 12 jars of water and dump them all over the altar? Remember, there's a drought going on. So imagine it was tough to find 12 jars of water. But they find 12 jars of water, pour it on the altar, fire comes down from heaven, it even laps up the water before it consumes the altar. And what powerful thing happens, they all repent, the people repent, and they bow before God. And then it begins to rain, the drought comes to an end. Elijah is now filled with adrenaline because of what just happened. And he runs 18 miles in the rain to a city called Jezreel. 
And it's here that we pick up the story in 1 Kings 19 with him feeling overwhelmed. He just can't take it anymore. And he says, God, I've had enough. I've had enough. For three years, he persevered. For three years, he stood strong. Now he has this huge victory, but on the other side of it, you would think he would be refreshed, saying, God, that was awesome. God, that was amazing. But instead, on the other side of it, he feels despair, depression, and he feels the weight of those years. Some of you can understand that. Maybe you persevered through a difficult season of your life. And once you got through it, you thought, once I get the kids raised, once I retire, once the extra money kicks in and we have a few more resources, once we get to this line, things are going to be different for us. But instead, things got harder. Things got tougher. You maybe even felt more overwhelmed. I think that's the case for Elijah. He was pushing hard. He was experiencing victories. But then all of a sudden, the drought ended, and he thought it would get better. But then we'll learn here it didn't. I want to take a few minutes and look at what caused Elijah's life to kind of go haywire here and what God did to help him recover because I think, it's, I think it applies to us. A few things to note about Elijah. One, he's coming off a great victory, a great victory. You might not think, again, that's a reason to get discouraged or feel depressed, but it's not unusual. Many of you can give testimony to something big, victorious happen in your life, and then on the other side of it, you're like, many moms give a test to it. They experience a difficult pregnancy. They're excited about the baby. The baby's born. For a little while, there's joy and excitement. And then after a while, for some unknown reason, without giving it permission, depression comes in, makes itself at home. And the new mom feels overwhelmed, and they don't really know why. Tears come. They don't understand. They feel bad about feeling that way. After all, they've anticipated this baby. The baby's healthy. But why am I here? Why am I here? And they're embarrassed, somewhat guilty about the feeling. So they stuff it, and they go into isolation. And the more they isolate themselves, the bigger the pothole becomes. Or maybe, maybe you're someone that's extremely driven and motivated. And you thought once you got that promotion, once you got there, everything was going to be great. But then you get the promotion, and on the other side of it, you're like, now what? And the weight in life is heavier. Another reason Elijah's feeling this way is he had this sense of futility, like nothing really changed for him. At least that's how he would have felt. Before this cage match on Mount Carmel, his life was in danger, being threatened. Now there's rain. Everything should be okay. The rain came. 1 Kings 19, 1 and 2. Listen to this. Now Ahab told Queen Jezebel, 
everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword, all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. He's right back where he started. He thought everything was great, and now the threats come, and nothing's changed. And discouragement sets in. So in life, we often think, well, I'm going to do everything I can to make my marriage better, for instance. I'm going to work at it. I'm going to do what I need to do. But a week later, after trying to work at it harder, nothing seems to get better. Three or four months later, your spouse continues with the accusations and the arguments continue. And at some point, you feel like, what's the use? It's not going to change. And despair sets in. When you're trying to make some changes as a parent, you think, okay, I'll read a book, I'll listen to some podcasts, I'll change the way I do some of the parenting, but the arguing and the complaining and the problems with the kids continue to mount, and you're not moving forwards, you just keep moving backwards, and you're right where you started. Those are the kind of things where Elijah finds himself to some degree. Then there's this sense of despair because the people were against him. Elijah's just doing what God told him to do. Everything God told him to do, but now first the king, now the queen threaten him, and the threats he feels are unfair, and he just couldn't see how God was working in all this. It didn't make any sense. Several months ago, there was a news story, I don't know if you saw it, but a woman named Laquidra Edwards was buying a lottery ticket. She stepped up to the lottery machine and the convenience store, and she's getting ready. She's looking at it, and all of a sudden, this dude walks in the door and bumps into her and bumps her right in, hard, bumps her hard enough that she hit the lottery machine. Anybody see this? All right, one, one of you, two of you. All right. She hits the lottery machine, and immediately she gets angry and frustrated with this guy. I mean, he didn't even say he was sorry. He didn't say, excuse me. He just bumps into her, and then he leaves the store. She looks down, and she realizes she accidentally hit the lottery dispenser, whatever those things are called. She hit it, and she accidentally purchased a $40 lottery ticket, which she really never intended to purchase at all. I didn't even know they made $40 lottery tickets. But she purchases one. She's still ticked off at this guy. Thinking, okay, what am I going to do about it now? So she finally got it out. She's upset and frustrated, and she scratches it off <laughs> to find out she has won $10 million. Is that crazy? She's won $10 million. All of a sudden, she doesn't feel too bad about that guy. <laughs> right? Why? Because her perspective had changed when she realized what had come. I think that's true for a lot of us. Many times in our lives, it feels like God just doesn't move fast enough, does he? 
We just don't understand what God's doing and how God's working behind the scenes. And maybe you won't realize what God's doing until years later we look back and think, whoa, that's why God took me through that. That's why God caused that person to treat me the way they treated me, to give me the opportunity to meet this person who has lifted me up and encouraged me. We don't often understand how God works behind the scenes to make great things happen in our lives. And that was true for Elijah. From his perspective, he just sat underneath that tree and it was an impossible situation. Fourth, I think Elijah felt this way because he was just exhausted. He was plain out exhausted. All the gauges in his life, emotional, spiritual, physical, relational, all of them were flashing on empty. And when one of them flashes, you're in trouble. But when all four of them are flashing, there's a huge pothole coming that you don't want to be a part of. 1 Kings 19.3 says this. He came to Beersheba in Judah, and he left his servant there while he himself went on a day's journey into the desert. Uh Uh-oh. He does what he shouldn't do. In a moment of despair and depression, he isolates himself even more. That's our tendency, right? Start feeling a little depressed. Despair starts to sink in. I've been there. The last thing you want to do is be around people. The last thing you want to do is be around people. But the more we isolate ourselves, the more we feel that way, and the deeper the pothole becomes. It's just a cycle until we finally get to the end and say, Lord, I've had enough. I've had enough. And we don't realize how much more we need people than what we think we need other people. In an article called The Public Health Crisis, No One is Talking About, Dr. Tyler Vendelwheel, I'll call him, professor at Harvard, made an interesting discovery after he did a decade worth of researching on how regular church attendance impacts specifically health care workers. He summarized his conclusions this way. He said, medical workers who said they attended religious services frequently, mostly in Christian churches, were 29% less likely to become depressed, 50% less likely to divorce, five five times less likely to commit suicide than those who never attended. He also found out that regular church attendance helps shield children for what he calls the three big dangers of adolescence, depression, substance abuse, premature sexual activity. He concludes, people who attend church as children, he added, are also more likely to grow up happy, to be forgiving, to have a sense of mission and a purpose to volunteer. Regular church attenders also have fewer what he calls deaths of despair, Deaths by suicide, 
drug overdose, or alcohol than people who never attended services. Reducing those deaths by 68% for women and 33% in men in the study. That's remarkable to me. That's, that's remarkable. And what we see is that God has us come together for a reason. And what aggravates me more so much about the church today is that we don't get that. We don't get that. When I was growing up, I didn't have a choice of going to church, going to worship. If I even brought it up, it wasn't even discussed. And it wasn't just Sunday morning. It was Sunday morning. It was Sunday night. It was Wednesday night. And I didn't have a choice in the matter all the way through high school. After a while, I quit asking. I just knew that was where I was going to be. And yet I see adults these days who don't even get that. On either campus here or Wadsworth, we are lucky. No, it just doesn't happen that you have the same group of church people together two weeks in a row. Why? I don't get that today. And we're lucky to have the same group of people together once a month because it's become the habit of the American people. Uh, once a month is good enough for me. That's off my notes, sorry. But that just aggravates me to no end. I pray that it will change. I think life will get tough enough that we've not seen the likes of what Satan is going to do in our world, that it will push people to realize that worship is the place to be because they will bow before God. Well, Elijah in that moment realized he needed to be with other people, but he isolates himself. And the more he isolates himself, the more he's convinced that nobody else understands. And so God does a few things for him. I love this. First of all, God lets him rest. God lets him rest. First Kings 19.5, he laid down underneath a tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. I love the gentleness of God right here in this, the, the thoughtfulness of God. Imagine waking up, being touched by an angel, waking up to the smell of fresh bread, not stale bread, cooked over hot coals in a jar of water. Isn't that cool? And he said, okay, your belly's full, lay back down again. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do is rest. Rest. And not feel guilty about it. Then the second thing God does is he gives Elijah his presence. 1 Kings 19.11 Elijah is told, go out and stand by the mountains in the presence of the Lord. 
for the Lord's going to pass by. You might remember this. There comes a great wind like a tornado, but God's not in the wind. There comes a powerful earthquake. God's not in the earthquake. There comes a fire. God's not in the flames. God's not there. And then Elijah hears a whisper. And God is in the whisper. And God gives Elijah his presence. Third, he gives Elijah a new responsibility. Verse 14, God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you underneath the tree by yourself? Elijah says, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. God, you know how much I've done for you. Do you realize how much I've sacrificed for you, for your purpose? But look how I'm treated. Do you recognize, don't you recognize how much a victim I am in all this? And again, God in his gentleness with him, his thoughtfulness, says, go back the way you came. Travel into the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Hazel to be king of Aram. In other words, God says, I've got a new job for you. I've got another assignment for you. I'm not done with you. And by the way, there are 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. You're not alone. You're not alone. When you feel overwhelmed, when you feel depressed and in despair, sometimes you got to discover a new purpose. you got to get a new purpose in life. And sometimes you need to understand you need somebody. You can't do this alone. You need a friend. And that's what God does for Elijah. He says, here's Elisha. Here's Elisha. Pour your life into him. Do life with him. Partner with him. Let him encourage you, and you encourage him along the way. In our moments of despair, I think God wants to do some of those things to us if we'll let him. A preacher by the name of Fred Craddock shared stories that he shared before, but I love this one. He tells about trying to get his dad to come to church. And as a preacher, as a pastor, it was important to him that his dad went to church. But his dad didn't want anything to do with church. He was pretty cynical against God, pretty cynical against the church. Whenever he would invite his dad to come to church, his dad would just say, oh, all the church wants, you know what they want? All they want is another name and another dollar. I'm not going to church. One of the final months of his life, his dad was diagnosed with cancer. Had a large portion of his throat removed and he couldn't speak anymore. He wasted away to 74 pounds. And he had a lot of despair in his life. Craddock said that even though his dad wasn't a part of the church, the church was just the church. The church was the church. The church still came to visit his dad. The church still prayed with his dad. Even though they didn't, he didn't ask him. They brought food to the house. They sat with a family in the waiting room. They sent flowers. They sent cards. They just kept coming. Craddock says the last time he saw his dad, he read to his dad some of the cards and the prayers from the people of the church. 
He read them out loud to his dad. And while he was reading them, remember his dad couldn't talk. His dad took out a piece of paper and he wrote, wrote down some words from Shakespeare's Hamlet. He wrote, In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. Craddock looked at him and says, what's your story, Dad? His dad took out a piece of paper and he wrote these words. I was wrong. I was wrong. I don't know what your story is. But I know the world that we live in right now is tough. And maybe, maybe you've had enough. You feel the despair that's around you. At times it overwhelms you. There are tendencies that you want to just isolate yourself and not let anyone else in. And the last place you want to be is here because there's a threat here. You've convinced yourself along the way that God's not really there for you, that God really doesn't see you. If that's where you are, hear these words. You're wrong. You're wrong. More than anything else, you need to understand that there is a God who loves you with everything he has. That you matter, you and you yourself matter to the God of the universe. And he would do anything for you to the point that he allowed his son to suffer and die for you. And the church... No, the church isn't perfect. It never will be. But we're in this together. We need to serve together, strive together, encourage one another, all the more as we see the day of Jesus approaching. And when that day comes, Jesus is going to finally say, I've had enough with the world. I've had enough. And he's going to make all things new. In the meantime, don't isolate yourself in your despair. Don't turn away from God. Don't convince yourself that you don't need other people, that you don't need the church. You need him. You need us. We need you. That's the way God intended it to be. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, for the church. We thank you, God, that you established it for a purpose, a purpose of encouragement, a purpose of sharing love, a purpose of doing life together even when life stinks. But God, most of all, we thank you for being you. We thank you, God, for encouraging us and reaching down into the muck of our world 
to the point that you walked here and you died here so that we could have hope that one day, one day, you will say, I've had enough with this world and Jesus will come back and he'll take us home to live eternally in, perf in perfection with him. May we carry this today as we leave here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.